Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. My guest today is the political YouTuber Maya Tusi. We spoke about a lot of things during the course of our conversation, including nationalism, Maya's origins in Iran, left versus right, the ongoing culture wars, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with your background. How is it you got involved doing what you do? Well, it was a bit of a luck. Um, I always tell people, obviously, started the YouTube channel, a political YouTube channel is uh, it's nothing that you can plan. And so a lot of kids these days say, I want to be an influencer, I want to be a YouTuber or an Instagramming. Don't aim for it. Um, if you don't have a plan, don't just do it for the sake of it. Um, I did it because uh, there was a gap in the market at the time a few years ago when Brexit happened and the Brexit negotiations were going on and the legacy mainstream media, your BBCs and Skies and all those guys, were not really reporting what people wanted to actually hear. So I started talking about those sort of things and that's why it got big. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? At the time of the Brexit vote, there were definitely gaps emerging mm. because it, I think that was probably the first time that it became really, really obvious mm. that the media had a partisan slant, uh, overwhelmingly so. Yeah, and, and I don't think they could even see it, could they? No, no. And, and a lot of people who criticise um, the, the whole of the establishment, generally speaking, the environment, that uh, they, they talk about them as if they have some sort of like a secret meeting to plot. They don't even know. Most of the time, there are some, of course, moments where it is kind of like, planned bias something like that but most of the time it's so hardwired for years and decades uh, that we've been used to what we've been fed so they yes. kept doing it and no one complained <laughs> so was it just the case that you created a youtube product that there was a market for uh, or is it that you had to do other things to sort of get it out there because i think a lot of people who want to start their own youtube commentary channel or anything like that or podcast or whatever it might be they do struggle they think how can i break through how can how can it get a wide reach what was what's how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, um, again, it's quite different to those who um, start podcasts or you know, anything like that or, or a channel um, because they want to actually use that as a product because um, that's also that's actually very difficult to do. Um, I just got lucky because um, I, w I didn't even have to try to do that because um, I still had a normal job, 9 to 5 job, and this was a hobby. And uh, YouTube as a whole is a good system that, you know, when it works, that it's just a search engine. So it did the promo for me. Uh, but the, the product I was selling, which was the Brexit negotiations yes. for a lot of normal people who just didn't want to listen to boring stuff on BBC, yeah. it was already working. So uh, I, luckily, I didn't need to kind of go do any ads or anything like that. <laughs> which means you're probably not best place to give people advice. Actually. No, no, no. Don't, don't ask advice about how to do YouTube from it. Okay. Uh, it's quite tricky, but yeah. What about your background? So where, where did you grow up? What was your education like? What sort of thing did you do? Yeah, so I um, my background's Persian. So my parents were from Iran. My mother was a political refugee um, and uh, a proper one, and not not like an illegal my, um, economic <laughs> migrant. <laughs> I always have to clarify. I get defensive about that. No, actually, my mum does, but not me. Um, and uh, I I was born in Tehran, in the capital, um, relative kind of middle class, kind of ordinary background, and uh, came here as a kid. Mm. It's a bit of a culture shock um, because we grew up in a council state in Lewisham, southeast London. So it's a, got a culture shock the other way around. <laughs> oh, I see. So you'd come from relative affluence yeah. to somewhere that wasn't. Okay. Yeah. So um, so that was kind of, I grew up in London and uh, went to university, got involved in politics and uh, initially started working in parliament. Then I realized I don't want to work in politics. Uh, so I started getting like normal jobs, but I was still involved in politics. I was very interested in all that stuff because of my background. Mm. Uh, if you're born and grew up in countries like Iran, Countries like Iran or Russia, these places where it's kind of like, it's not complete North Korea style dictatorship. It's, it's, it's kind of like a gray area sort of thing. It's authoritarianism. Yeah. Uh, you have to, by default, 
be uh, in touch with current affairs and everything else. Even as a kid, uh, my dad was basically like showing me all the like newspapers and everything else. So I was already kind of in touch um, with, with everything. So automatically when I got here, I got interested in politics and now obviously what I do. But when you were born, of course, <clears throat> um, the new regime in Iran was established. And how much did you know about life before the revolution? Well, at that point, uh, anything we were taught was by the regime, uh, post revolutionary. So, <laughs> yeah. so it had a slant, right? It was quite tricky because um, we they have this uh, they have this, obviously a lot of like propaganda and stuff. One of them is they have this anniversary of the revolution every year, and when you're a school kid, you have to actually do. It's kind of like mandated, but not in a sense that if you don't do, you go to prison. But it's more like a it's become a cultural tradition that you know, it's a kid. It's like Halloween. Yes. <laughs> you kind of like to decorate the kind of the classroom and all that. So by default, everything you see on TV and in you know, classrooms and history books is about how uh, the Shah of Iran was um, a degenerate, kind of a greedy. Uh, it's, it's kind of painted like a Bond villain, like you know, okay, like, a like caricature. A, yeah, um, it's a little bit like a cat and everything. <laughs> so, did they actually give him a cat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, <laughs> in history books, yeah, they had a cat, but okay. he didn't have a cat. <laughs> um, okay. It was it was a bit weird. Um, but as as people grew up, about well, my generation especially, and um, this was the beginning of the rise of obviously um, social media. I was already here, but in Iran, the people I knew towards the end, like two thousand nine, when yes. this is like the age of like Facebook and Twitter. And the, the green movement happened, kind of almost revolution happened in Iran, but this was our generation. Yeah. The kids who were brainwashed until now, and now they have access to information from the West and the whole world. Yes. So they decided to be like, oh, the Shah wasn't the person we were told. Uh, America was not, you know, what we were told about, the capitalism, democracies and all that. So it's actually the, because of um, the, the, the exports of uh, Western values, which yeah. is basically the innovation that we have, the access to information, the internet and everything else, we are already influencing those places without you know, having a kind of boots on the ground. Which I suppose is why certain countries will try and prohibit the use of yeah. the internet. Exactly. So technically, from their perspective, you can't blame them because <laughs> yeah, they, they want to shut down the access to information. You don't need to do an Iraq anymore. You don't need to do an Afghanistan anymore. And, and that's why people like Putin are freaking out because, and they are, again, from their perspective, they're saying, well, it's justified when we criticize uh, America and the West and NATO being the kind of the dark side, the, the kind of the bond villains. Because yes, that's yeah. what we are doing. <coughs> we're not planned. We are basically influencing their culture, but we're not doing it for any purpose. We're just doing it. So how old were you when you left Iran? I was old enough, 13, 14. <coughs> 13, OK, 14. so you, you've actually experienced that, oh, yeah. the, the impact of that kind of propaganda. Oh, God, yeah. So I'm just interested in to what extent or was there a moment where you could start to see through it or to, you know, in the way that... A young child one day will say, hang on a minute, yeah. is Santa Claus real? You keep telling me about this Santa Claus, but I don't see evidence, and then it clicks. Well, I think it was a moment. I think it was, um, by default, that generation, the way they push. It's the same with any generation, that you kind of rebel against the previous generation. Okay. Uh, so it's, some people think you're rebelling against your parents. It's not even that. So right now, for example, Generation Z, the Zoomers, are rebelling against uh, millennials. Yes. So they're becoming less woke in some areas. Yeah. Uh, but, for example, with that, when I grew up there, the way they were pushing Islam as a religion, but they weren't even selling it as a religion, they were selling it as a, as a way of life and political kind of power, gov governmental kind of power sort of thing. This is just how we live. Yes. They unintentionally turned the majority of my generation in Iran towards becoming either atheists or convert to Christianity. Really? So yeah. So from day one, well, day one, Lebanon was like kids. We were kids. We were not taking it seriously. We were like sitting in the back of the classroom, just heckling, and then they were talking about this sort of thing. So and we go into a lot of trouble. 
I'm sure you did, but I mean, this is a this is a theocracy. This is a place where mm. the, the the it has a state religion. Yes, that is very much tied into the way in which the country runs. I mean, we have a state religion here, but it's not so much tied in. It's not pushed like that, though. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting that you, you that you're, you're saying that it wasn't just you. There were lots of people, young people, who just sort of instinctively rebelled against against this stuff. This is where both the the current Iranian regime uh, compared to those days and some other kind of grey area authoritarian uh, regimes like. Uh, Putin and Kremlin until basically now. Uh, what they've learned is don't go full on North Korea because, uh, or right now in Shanghai mm. uh, in China, because don't push the buttons too much. There's a war right now in Iran. They're not doing what they were doing like when they were doing it to me and my kind of friends. Yes. They're doing it kind of less so because when they were doing it pushing authoritarian theocracy, they turn everybody into atheism. They, they, uh, they ban Western music. So everybody already had uh, kind of black market, black uh, kind of um, uh, what kind of fake like uh, these, these stuff. sort of yeah. So you can't completely ban things. It's the same with free speech. It's the same with anything else or syntaxes. If you want to go too far, people will find a way to do sin. And yes. so you know they they ban nightclubs. People started having their basements as an illegal nightclub. So now they're doing it kind of semi-authoritarian. So they kind of turn a blind eye so that they 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 allow you to have the, an illusion of freedom. And it kind of works, which is dangerous, because right now there's a lot of complacency in Iran. Um, same generation that, you know, my generation that were kicking off at the time, they're now fine. They're right. saying, oh, we don't have any energy now to do revolution, because they think... they've got enough. They've got enough freedom. They're like, you know, yeah, we could do whatever we want now. So are you saying that there is a kind of human instinct to just push back? If you're told you can't have something, you'll want something. Absolutely. It's the same with the, this debate about free speech in the West, that over the last, especially over the last like five years, yeah. they're more... Uh, the authoritarian side, the cultural kind of establishment side of it, but that is the big tech or media or the political system that pushed too extremely against the, uh, the so-called hate speech. Yeah. That's what you had, uh, the kind of provoking aspects of, we're just going to do hate speech for banter. Yes. Not because a lot of people on the so-called right of the political spectrum are like bad people or rude or, or they want to say like this or that. It, it's just because they felt suffocated. So they're like, just for the sake of it, I'm going on Twitter and say this. Of course. And so you have to kind of don't go too far. And that's why I'm hoping that with this Elon Musk thing, with the Twitter um, now buying it, um, platforms like Twitter could actually do that to kind of put, kind of pull back a bit. Yeah. You, know, you could still have your regulations. You could still have your uh, kind of guidelines, but don't push too much. I think, well, let's come on to Elon Musk in a yeah. moment because I am, I am fascinated by that story. But I just want to ask, just, just to bring it back to your upbringing, do you think that your experiences in Iran as a young person informed the way that you approach politics in this country? Interesting question. Um, probably to an extent. Um, mainly, for example, by default, when I <clears throat> came here, and I, as I grew up like in late teens, um, and I was thinking about politics and political ideology, before knowing that I'm, well, right-wing or kind of conservative, a small-c conservative, I knew that I had the, the, the values by default of uh, free speech, democracy, free, free market capitalism, specifically free market capitalism, um, because then I realized because of my upbringing, right. we didn't have it. And uh, so that's why I was shocked when I came here and grew up in a, in a kind of southeast London, uh, sort of like a working class area. But for me and my mom, it was still 
we were still so like happy and excited and kind of grateful. But it, all we were hearing was complaints and people saying, "This is the end of the world. It's the worst country in the world. We're going to die." We're going <laughs> to. It's like, uh, no, I can show you the actual rock bottom. Yes, uh, and it will be like Turkey to Iran or any other place uh, that you know, if you are born in a certain class or kind of background, then you will get stuck. So in terms of the, 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 my political ideology or my values, the reason I now do what I do on YouTube and everything and, and everything else to push to, for the protection of you know, freedom, individual liberties, because if we get complacent to a tiny little bit, then you will accidentally turn Britain into another Iran. Not in an exaggerated way, not a complete yeah, in yeah. that sense, but you will accidentally kind of walk into towards that. So thing. is it just the complacency that comes about when a culture starts taking freedoms for granted? I mean, I hear Rita Panahi, for instance, in Australia, often talking about you know the, the society in Australia today. People just don't realise what it's like to grow up in an actual authoritarian. Uh, regime and so it's very easy for us. I mean, who was that radio presenter the other day who was going on about how England's just a grotty, racist little yeah on country. LBC, yes, on yeah. LBC, and yeah. you just think that <laughs> suggests to me you just haven't travelled very much. It's it's a problem that specifically for cultures like here and Western Europe, and especially cultures that came from kind of, kind of had monarchies or have monarchies, mm. because two different kind of cultures don't have it. Um, one is your Iran's and Russia's where they know their elections are rigged, but they still go and queue for hours. It's fascinating how there are real queues. Yeah. Like they, well, not the current, if they have an election right now in Putin, for Putin it's not going to be the same, but um, in the past, if there's an election in Iran or Russia or these places, people still go and queue because they, they still feel involved because you know, for them, even though they know it's kind of, they have a feeling it's rigged, yeah. they still feel, oh, they appreciate the concept that we're going to go and vote. We become complacent here compared to then the other side, your revolutionary countries, yeah. your Frances and your Americas, they actually still appreciate, they don't go complacent. Um, so yeah, you, you might talk about your Californias and Silicon Valleys, but you still also have Florida, you still have your Texas. And um, those places, they're still fine. They're not going to go fully complacent. France, you know, despite all the issues and, you know, it, 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 well, it's still a democratic elected government. Macron could go authoritarian with domestic policies, but it's unlikely that France will go com accidentally by complacency towards and the next hit. But, but even even if it's not the case, I mean, this gets raised again and again, this slippery slope argument. Yep. You know, I make arguments in favour of free speech and people say, oh, so you think we're freewheeling towards the gulags or that kind of society. <laughs> and I'm not saying that. No, no. I'm saying that uh, this is a kind of inch mill uh, degeneration of, of liberty. That can happen. Yes. And, and it doesn't have to have that terminus of complete authoritarian catastrophe. Yes. It can be bad enough if the, if the freedoms are eroded at all. Exactly. I mean, look at what um, a few years ago they started the governments. Where basically, the centre center left and centre right both agreed to do certain taxes, like a sugar tax or like the plastic bags and things like that. You, if you at the time stand up and complain, you'll be the nutter because if it was the people say it, it's it's an okay policy, it's just one policy, yeah, yeah. and it's good intentions. And Milton Friedman always said, don't judge a policy or program based on its intentions, judge it based on its outcome. Yeah. But people always judge it by its intention. And we, and we say, but we're complaining because it's not about this policy, it's about you're going to continue. You're going to set a bad precedent. And they say, no, 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 trust us, it's going to be fine. And now they're going after pizza toppings and pizza, yeah. size of pizzas and things like that. It's the same with free speech. One word will be banned. And then next thing, any opinion will be banned. <laughs> well, I think it's less that one thing directly <laughs> leads to another. I don't think it's necessarily a causal yeah. thing. But I think those kind of policies you're describing, the nanny state sort of policies, are indicative of a tendency 
that then feeds into these other things. I mean, if you take yeah. the SNP, for a long time they've been doing trying to get bans on two for one pizzas, <laughs> minimum pricing on alcohol. They're, they're really, you know, they tried that named person scheme yeah. where every Scottish child would have a state guardian, which I think is chilling. It didn't go through, thank God. But, you know, these kind of attitudes. And now where where are we? We're at Humza Youssef, <laughs> uh, the Justice Secretary, uh, shoehorning through this draconian hate speech bill, which criminalizes speech in your own home, right? So it, one doesn't lead to the other, but one creates the conditions within which the other can flourish. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. There. It's not necessarily the specific policies that will kind of give liberty to the next policies to do it. It's the it's, it's a lack of, uh, it's not just the complacency, obviously, the lack of uh, complaints, mm. or maybe the wrong type of complaints, but it's the, the issue of they believe that these policies, the intention is for uh, the greater good or yeah. for security. For example, the early days of um, uh, COVID days and lockdowns. Um, a lot of people like me thought that this could actually, the beginning of lockdown, this could actually feel libertarianism and people are going to become more libertarian. I should know. I was wrong. Because uh, people want security over liberty. Yes. Uh, when when you know, they feel that there's, there's a crisis. So, uh, but then but there, is, there is a limit. For example, whether it's in Scotland or here, um, for example, the lockdown days, if there are specific policies that are so abnormal and nonsensical and the, the, the governments or the people who are promoting it can't justify, then people will kick off. Yeah. And, you know, the general first lockdowns, those sort of things, people will be like, okay, I understand the intention, I understand it's justified, I'll stay at home. But when you say group of six, people say, why not five, why not seven? Yeah. And the same with Scotland, certain policies, they got too far that they can't even justify it for the greater good of security or kind of things like that. And people then, that's when people will uh, rise up, for example, basically in terms of the narrative. But that also applies to some cultures. It's this culture, the Anglo-Saxon culture, the British culture, because from day one, uh, we, we always resisted authority. Uh, and because of that, we didn't become revolutionary. Yeah. We created a kind of a, a convention between the state and the people so that the state, by default, don't go too far after yeah. Charles I. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and people don't really go burning cars like the French every 10 minutes. <laughs> sure. That's the French reputation. Yeah. <laughs> Although they haven't really been doing that all that much. Well, they did it two days ago again. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> after the election. Yeah. Like, we, we, we lose elections or we win elections. Uh, yeah, we have some, some nutters going to protest outside Downing Street yeah. and shout and, and say, stop Brexit. But in France, in like revolutionary countries, in America, they go outside and actually burn cars and like go attack their you know, bookstores. I'm like, yeah. why are you attacking books? Like, <laughs> it makes no sense. But yeah, I suppose they had the gilets jaunes, didn't they? And the, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that you know you have very sort of uh, you have conservative values? You would say just generally. Do you think there's any sense in which your upbringing might have informed that as well? Insofar as I would say, any kind of nation that has a theocratic basis mm -hmm. is quite culturally conservative. It is quite interesting. For me, it's, it's, it's not fully that. I, I thought about this because someone asked me, I said, I'm a libertarian conservative. And they're like, what does that even mean? Um, but I got my libertarianism from Iran because of that. Right. Uh, my, my conservatism actually was uh, developed or created because of this culture. And it's very, very soft conservatism. You mean because of the British culture? Yeah. And if I were to, to, I had moved to like France or somewhere else, I, I can imagine it would have been something else. <laughs> um, but I, I, would, I was always going to be right-leaning, more right-leaning than left-leaning. I was never going to go towards socialism because socialism comes ha goes hand in hand with state control. Okay. And so I was never going to go with that. But uh, I, I became more libertarian. Well, I'm basically more socially libertarian, economically free market, but culturally I'm conservative so yes yeah, so yeah value kind of flags and border and family values so you are a nationalist you would say 
That's the thing. Um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of come up with a better phrase. Nationist, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, national libertarian. Oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah. is, it, is it just that you're nervous about the, the connotations that yeah. that term has? Um, yeah, and I would like to fix it. Okay. There's nothing wrong with it. So that is an interesting point, though, isn't it? Is that, you know, uh, I mean, this was obviously something that was leveled against a lot of Brexit voters during the referendum, that, you know, the, the people, who, well, they, they call them flag wavers or whatever. Yep. And if, if, you, if you have a sense in which a nation state is the best way in which yep. to preserve democracy, yep. which is actually kind of an old school left wing idea. Yeah. Um, then for some reason that will tip over into jingoism yeah. simply because there are some sort of fanatical uh, xenophobic types yes. who use the flag or appropriate the flag uh, for racist ends. Exactly. That's why, I mean, uh, the combination, if you combine uh, kind of the national conservatives side and the more kind of libertarian side mm. to, uh, to ideology, it will prevent you from going to either side because I, I disagree with most nationalists because they go too too far too, too far towards uh, tribalism yeah. and isolationism, and I also disagree with libertarians because they go way too far too close to globalism and no borders and no flags. Uh, but if you actually have the basic soft nationalism, which is kind of just patriotism, uh, respect your flags, look after your people first, but still libertarian and um, internationalist, so then we will do free trade, uh, but we're not going to sell our sovereignty and identity, national identity. But then where do refugees fall into that? People fleeing war, mm -hmm. asylum seekers, that kind of thing. I mean, the, the concept of actual um, like wartime refugees, that, that has to be um, case by case and depending on the location. So yes. um, uh, now we live in a world where countries clear, well, apparently work together under the United Nations, but they don't really actually work together. Um, we can support camps near a region in a continent where people are running away. Yes. And the majority of people, look at Ukraine, look at uh, Hong Kong. Uh, these are obviously kind of more kind of recent, but even long-term ones, uh, Iran. The, the people who left these countries, if you ask, ask them, if you interview them, the majority of them say they want to go back when the time's right. Yes. Uh, so they are the genuine refugees who still actually appreciate their countries. Uh, so we can actually always support these people. And, uh, but it has to be case by case. You should not really put any guilt on any nation or culture say, hey, America, you haven't taken enough, uh, I don't know, Ukrainians or Syrians. Or it shouldn't be like this. We could, we could still actually help with priority, which is just make, make them be safe somewhere in a camp or something. And then we can see what we can actually do with all the neighboring countries. Because a lot of the time, any debate about immigration, anyone who has reservations is branded racist or yeah, whatever, automatically. <laughs> I mean, I think there is a great tradition in this country of helping people yep. in need. Yep. And your family has obviously benefited from that as well. So you, you're, you're fully aware more than anyone of this. Yep. Um, but that is important, isn't it? That we find a way that, uh, and perhaps to alleviate people's concerns, we make distinctions between purely economic migrants mm -hmm. and those who are genuinely in need and desperate. Exactly. Um, people have to be honest about um, the, the main difference between economic migration and, uh, and actual kind of well, political refugees or asylum seekers is that the countries that take in economic migrants, they have to admit that they are selfish. They're doing it for them. Yeah. Uh, you, you take in economic migrants, the talent and the people who want to come here to actually work because it's good for you. And then that's when... Well, it is. I mean, the NHS wouldn't survive without... Exactly. But then the problem is, then you have a lot of people in your country... Uh, who are so we still feel left out or kind of still need help and then they feel they can they can sense that okay the, the government and the, the the culture is bringing these people because they've basically been selfish that you know well it's, it's helping the economy fine but what about me 
help me first and then them. Uh, so I get that argument. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to actual political refugees, um, genuine asylum seekers, um, majority of people actually are very quite sympathetic, including the majority of it's almost all Brexiteers. Yes. And everybody who voted against the European Union, everybody was very fine with the, the Hong Kong policy. Saying, yes. oh, yeah, yeah, um, we're fine if they come here because they knew that the majority are not going to come here anyway, and they didn't. And they knew that they also uh, are closer, they have closer links to the United Kingdom because of the Commonwealth in those days. Um, pe people have this uh, basic kind of human instinct of um, well, fearing anything new or the concept of alien because we are tribal. There's nothing wrong with it. People call it, oh, by default, you're racist. It's not. It's the same reason that when I was campaigning in, as a, a political activist and a candidate in East London, in Canning Town, uh, kind of working class, uh, kind of, there was a bit where kind of proper like a East Enders or area. And we had a chat and they, they said, we, we, we're not like against foreigners or people coming here. We're, we're against them because we're against anybody uh, who is basically not from this area, including a white posh boy from Chelsea. We'll basically be opposing that as well. Uh, so it's not, okay. it's not about skin color. It's not about those sort of things. There's a lot of people who want to protect their tribes. Your tribe could be you and your partner. Your, your family, your home with a door and windows, and then your neighborhood and your towns. And if the establishment understands that you have to have a balance between uh, respecting that tribe, but also trying to become more kind of open and kind of uh, outward looking slowly, and then you could have a perfect country. <laughs> When you were campaigning, was that for the Conservative Party? At the time, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you say at the time quite rapidly, <laughs> which makes me think that maybe you're a bit more disillusioned with them now. Would that be a fair? Yeah, yeah. I'm, well, um, I'm not a, yeah, a, a Tory um, anymore. Not necessarily just because, oh, yeah, of course, I can't really see myself as being a Tory uh, because of the disagreements. Uh, but also, I'm no longer a party political person because okay. of uh, what I've been doing uh, made me more, just more open. And independent. Yeah, independent. What would you say that the Tory party needs to do to sort of <laughs> win your approval back? <laughs> go through destruction and build from <laughs> scratch. No, oh, um, that is pessimistic. I mean, <laughs> if we go back right to Brexit, I mean, yeah. there was the Tory party that we're pushing for. Yeah. Remain. Yeah. David Cameron very yeah. much uh, urging that. Yeah. Um, so is that where this disillusionment starts? No, no. Um, it kind of... It was always there, and I think I was just basically ignoring it because I was in, 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 inside a party and I was basically doing something. Um, you, you can't really have faith fully uh, in the Tory party as a voter even, but you can't fully lose that faith because the, the, the history of the Tory party is that, as the majority of people know, that it's, it exists to uh, survive and ex exercise power. Yes. And, uh, but they have a set of values. It's not an ideological party. It, it believes in a set of values, basic values, uh, of uh, basically protecting the United Kingdom and all that stuff. Fine. Uh, and basic conservatism. Still, they still have that. But it has to be pushed uh, to do things. Uh, and uh, so whether it was the days of uh, when it was the protectionist party, anti-trade, and it was the, the likes of Robert Peel and these guys and Gladstones that pushed the party to become pro-free trade mm. uh, and uh, will move from being party of church and the whole Irish kind of situation. It always changed based on which side was pushing harder. Right now, and until recently, you had UKIP, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party and the whole Brexit short term, based on one project, push the party to go towards more freedom. But since then, it's been pushed by the left, uh, centre left. And uh, so people say that the Labour Party is a weak opposition. Yeah, but it's also the only, uh, the, the, the strongest opposition that exists, that is as a pressure group that's pushing the Tory party uh, to behave. 
And so by default, the Tory party will always have to kind of compete. See the Tory party as that kind of child that, you know, wants to just basically uh, kind of, if you say, don't touch this, I want to touch it. Okay. Uh, so if Starmer says, I want lockdown, Boris would say, I want more lockdown. If Starmer says high taxes, and say, I want more high taxes. If Nigel Farage comes and says, uh, leave the European Union, then slowly, it took some time, but the Tory party will grow and say, yes, now I want to leave. But that sounds like to me like a party that doesn't have any core values at all and is just chasing votes and adapting itself in order to compete better. It's a social club with access to power, basically. So (laughs) by your analysis, I mean, that doesn't sound like a party I would vote for either. I've never voted Tory myself. But I, I, you know, that doesn't sound convincing to me. No, and no, ideally you want you want the whole system to be different. You know, the political system and the whole structure. But uh, um, this is what we have now. I mean, right now, if you put a gun to my head and say you have between red and blue and the other nonsensical parties and you know, <laughs> the other colours, I by default I'm going to have to vote Tory again, and that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, but but we don't want to again give them the complacency. That's the problem. But there are some issues with the Tory party that I particularly have. And one of them is their attitude to free speech, yeah. which I think is very bad. I mean, the, the Labour's has been awful for a long time. They, I mean, Corbyn was very hostile about press freedom. I mean, I remember him. Expli- and bear in mind, I, I voted for Corbyn in 2017. He explicitly said. How drunk were you? <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, 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 I do regret that. Um, he said explicitly that when he, if he came to power, he would really clamp down on the press. Yeah. You know, I went to a press drinks one of Corbyn's press drinks events. And you could tell how much he hated them. I mean, the, the hostility was just palpable. Um, but I don't think the Tories are any better, really. I mean, they, their online safety bill, I think, is absolutely disastrous for free speech. Yeah. And, and I would expect them, of all people, to, to have a real issue with that and to sort of just curb this a little bit, but they're not. They, the difference is, um, someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who would do those things ideologically, he knows exactly why he's doing it. And that's his just core values. That, yeah. know, I, I need to clamp down on the press uh, because, you know, they're criticizing my ideology, fine. But the Tories do it, again, in a more, they're kind of vacant in that sense. And they're doing it because of what I said, that they they go with the wave, whichever wave is kind of hitting harder. Right now, when it comes to the online safety bill or anything, just internet and safety, just Mm. all that stuff. Yes, you have some of us who are outspoken. We go on TV, we go on YouTube, we, we tweet about it. But... The establishment were actually quite out of touch in Whitehall. They can smell something else. They smell, they think that the mood in the country, they want more internet security. And so they say, okay, they don't even think that this is ideologically a sound kind of argument. They just by default, it's like autopilot, like robots would then do the online safety bill. And that's, that's a big issue because they think that's what people want. But, it, you know, they leap to it, don't they? I mean, with the, with the horrific murder of David Amos. Yeah. All of a sudden, we had all these conversations about but online online trolls, which had absolutely nothing to do with it. it that's it also it. just because they, they they are politicians, and it's disgusting that they just take op- opportunities and anything that happens, they use it all the time, and it's, it goes towards all of them, all parties, and that's that's a big issue well, that we're dealing with. Is it just a misinterpretation of, of 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 the public mood? Insofar as they're seeing people who are concerned about the fact that children can access all sorts of things online, mm-hmm. uh, they're seeing the effects of online abuse. The psychological effects and 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 all of that is real and true. Yep. And that they assume, therefore, that well, we need to, more online censorship. And actually, the two don't equate at all. It's because politicians also uh, and the, the, the political class they are very very awkward when it comes to emotions and things that are sensitive. Uh-huh. Uh, so by default, it's also a very British thing. Uh, by default, anything, any topic that involves any sort of emotion. Mm. 
they go towards let's just basically do anything to not basically provoke them even more. That comes with hate speech laws. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the whole issue with all the debates that we're dealing with from the trans lobby and everything else, it's that fear. It's just so hardwired that they just don't want to offend. Uh, just just even s small chunk of society because they know that small chunk of society will write Daily Mirror articles, the Guardian articles, and they will just kick off. And Owen Jones will go on TV and cry again. So they have to kind of just be so careful. Well, they think they have to be careful. So every sort of these policies, uh, whether it's the online safety bill, because they, uh, they think that the people out there are stupid. They don't know uh, much about the internet. Uh, so they think that, well, if, if someone, someone's daughter was basically bullied on, online, if I then don't do the online safety bill, if I do the exact opposite of it or deregulation, then that person, that dad is going to be so... Um, offended, he's going to start a campaign group and he's going to start campaigning for Keir Starmer. Okay. And that could happen, of sure. course. But, but you, you, can't, you can't just bow down because of... That, well, I'd like to think more people would be offended by the uh, restrictions on their liberties and their basic rights to free speech and free expression, I would have thought. You would have thought, but no, because uh, like, they, like the whole concept of lockdowns, um, when things are relatively well and safe and secure in, 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 in a country, like the West right now, uh, we take things for granted, including yeah. democracies. You know, look at the, the voting turnout, even in France. It, it, you would expect in other countries, in like a lot of countries in Africa that actually now do elections, you get 80%, like 85% of turnout. Yeah. The, the ones that are not fully rigged, obviously. Uh, but we, we don't really care much because, you know, we, we just don't f feel that kind of fear. And that's what I'm trying to do with my work, to kind of, uh, well, wake people up, but without creating that kind of project fear. Uh, I'm trying to tell people, guys, trust me, I know how it could be. When I grew up in Iran and like those sort of cultures, the moment you lose it, your freedoms and all these things, then you know. So try not to reach that point. Wake so then, up before. Where does this place you when it comes to, for instance, the, uh, the protest bill, the police crime and sentencing bill, mm -hmm. where the government is sort of saying that if a protest is too noisy, mm. the police have the, the uh, ability to arbitrarily shut it down. I mean, <laughs> that strikes me. And I, I've seen a lot of people on the right uh, think that's a good thing, yep. think the bill is a good thing because they're sick of people like Insulate Britain and yep. Extinction Rebellion. But I think that's quite myopic because you're looking at it you're, you're looking at it in relation to groups that you particularly don't like. Yes. And, and you don't see how that legislation then expands and, and, and encapsulates people that you end up, that you do. I mean, for instance, if you take the public order bill, I mean, that was rushed through, uh, uh, Labour were pushing for this yeah. after the Battle of Cable Street. Mm. Let's establish these laws that prevent fascists mm -hmm. from marching through and, and, and causing these, these problems. And those laws, almost exclusively, have been used against left-wing movements ever yeah. since. Yeah, because it was uh, left that pushed them through. The tendency of the um, basic authoritarianism, uh, it could be accidentally supported by both sides at times. Yeah. Uh, so right now, Insular Britain, if they block the roads, um, the right will complain and uh, the left say, no, it's their liberties. If tomorrow, I don't know what sort of protest we could have now because lockdown has gone now, but like, hypothetically, if there was a right-wing protest group uh, blocking the roads, the right will actually justify it. And then it will be the left saying, oh, no, they're, they're blocking the roads, like basically arrest them all. And, yeah. th and that's why, by default, hardwired establishment end up doing authoritarian policies. Uh, not that they know that they could be, it will be supported by both sides, Hardwired, they know they have a feeling that you know there's, there's enough support uh, to get the bill. Is that hypocrisy something you see on the right? I mean, I think it was the same with the Canadian trucker protest. They were not treated yeah. in the same way by the right as the Extinction Rebellion or Insulate Britain protests. But the principle is identical. Oh yeah, absolutely. And 
the, the issue goes to any sort of action uh, that you can see hypocrisy from both sides, um, including speech. Um, I've made some jokes on YouTube. Uh, uh, some of my um, uh, kind of more kind of right-wing uh, viewers and subscribers have kind of criticized me saying, oh, don't say that. I'm like, well, uh, let me say it. <laughs> it's just a joke. Yeah. Uh, but again, if, if, if the left says that, they will say, oh, see, you're just being offended. But the right also become snowflakes sometimes. Like they yeah. become, like they melt down badly. Um, but it's, it's a very specific type of right. You know, it's, it's yeah. not a stereotype all right-wingers or all left-wingers of, 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 at this point. It's, it's kind of like a... It's that anger, that new wave of anti-establishment uh, that comes from both left and right. So your your Corbyn sides, and now you have the I don't know. For example, in France, the Le Pen side. Yeah. Uh, some of them from both groups do the same uh, because they are both uh, they both have the same enemy, the establishment. The, yes. the, the, you know, the whole kind of the globalist elite. They all they're actually they're both fighting, fighting the same thing. But they have obviously two different solutions, and that's why they, they keep clashing. <laughs> I mean, so much now, I mean, I've spoken to, uh, on this podcast to a number of people about this, but increasingly it's feeling less like a battle of left versus right and yeah. a bit more about liberty versus authority. And that seems to be, that has played out to come back to Elon Musk. Um, the, the way in which the reactions on Twitter seem to have very simplistically divided into left-wing people mm -hmm. are upset about Elon Musk and right-wing people yeah. are thrilled with Elon Musk. Yeah. Uh, I think that's massively simplistic. Oh, of course, yeah. And there's a lot of people on the left, uh, or the so-called far left. Um, and the likes of Ash Sarkar and these guys, actually, uh, they are less woke. I mean, there are some certain topics, like even like Novara Media and Ash Sarkar, like they could be kind of woke-key about, so like, yeah. you know, they're like racial stuff. But generally speaking, the actual left-left, they're not really that kind of progressive. It's the liberal side. It's the, basically the kind of the more kind of globalist establishment, kind of the elitist metropolitan side. They, they, that's kind of the big issue. It's not about left or right anymore. In that but, that, but that's interesting with Navarro Media because occasionally I see them really playing identity politics. Oh, yeah. And really going and down... The, <laughs> yeah, well, they go down the culture war route oh, yeah. and then deny and say, no, but we're all about, yeah. uh, about the economy and about class. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But, but they're not really. No, they but, are sometimes. But that's just gimmicky. For, it's, it's a business tactic uh, to kind of get more attention, obviously. They're deep down, they, they will be more Marxist. They will be more, oh, we, we shouldn't really care about um, the, the woke stuff. But I know why they think they should and why, why they do because they still need the support of more people from the left. So they have to pander to all these groups. They're, they're kind of the endangered groups, I guess. <laughs> Do you think that Elon Musk buying Twitter is going to solve some of the problems that we've seen with online censorship? Well, not necessarily online censorship. It's actually going to probably uh, short term, and by short term, I'm talking about the next five years, uh, open the door to more chaos throughout the whole internet. Um, but that's okay, a good why? thing. Why? Because um, there will be backlash. So, yes, he might potentially sort out most things with Twitter. And he can't really, there will be a like, miracle sort of thing that Twitter won't be completely fixed in that sense. No, no, no. But what he could but do is just draw up a culture. He could draw up a coherent terms of service yeah. that says, you will be banned if you say something racist. You will be banned if you say yeah, this. Exactly. He might say, it's okay to state biological facts and you're not going to have your account ditched. Yeah. He might implement a new appeals process so that you actually get the reason why you're being kicked off. All of these things are actually doable. Exactly. And that for that, it's a great thing that has happened. But when I say it's going to open the door to chaos, at least for a while, the backlash is that you're going to have some other people from Silicon Valley then um, either creating new platforms, successful platforms, because yes. uh, they'll push for it, um, or semi-successful at least. They, they have enough people to have users. Um, or make existing platforms that we currently have Make them even worse, okay. your Instagrams and your Facebooks and these, these sort of things. And then there will be a bit of an awkward situation. My guess is the, the, the culture wars will now go completely online. 
because uh, culture was over the last like five years, six, seven years, uh, was for online. Yeah. But it was still in real life. Uh, but they was actually used. We used the platforms to actually fight uh, the culture wars. But now the culture wars will be about the online world. Yeah. For on the on, online world, and it's going to be quite interesting to see what's going to happen post Twitter. All these guys who are leaving Twitter, they're going to do something with their life, right? Yeah. And all the employees are going to kick off and go on strike. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I've seen um, tweets about the reaction within Twitter, mm. and some of the members of staff are having a meltdown, <laughs> and they are saying they don't know if they can work for this evil yeah. Musk. And uh, you know, people talk about how this is the equivalent of the rise of the Third Reich, <laughs> yeah. and uh, they're not joking. They, they, no, they, they, and, they mean it. And, yeah, they think it. And some of them are quite prominent and commentators and politicians and comedians and, and people like that and Kathy Griffin talking about how <laughs> Elon, Elon Musk is a white supremacist and just, just throwing out libel as though it's not libel yeah. and you know but this stuff is I, th I see it as a genuine hysteria I yeah. look at this and think adults shouldn't behave this way no. um, is it just that the internet infantilizes us just makes us stupid the internet actually has, has, it has some sort of factor when it comes to giving us uh, that kind of beer goggle, uh, the the, okay. uh, the bravery in the moment, and uh, the whole concept of keyboard warriors, and yeah. we all have it at times. Like if it, I've seen me do it sometimes, I've seen you do it sometimes. Like very soft the way on Twitter, that you know even I'm quite gentle on Twitter. I know, but I sometimes I said sassy kind of like uh, comments and like very very subtle. <laughs> that you know we would be more polite, more polite, and yeah. I say you're you're lovely. Uh, but you know a lot of other people that you know would just not even bother do a, even a passive-aggressive sort of argument yeah. in real life. Yeah, it, it does give us that bravery, but that means that sometimes some people, then it escalates. Um, yes. Uh, but it's not the fault of the online world, it's the fault of the people. Uh, so don't blame the internet uh, or the platform, blame the actual individual. There was this guy, forgot the name, I'm guessing he's in America, some sort of PhD guy, like a classic, educated, liberal, tweeted yeah, yeah. Uh, this morning or last night about how uh, can you really um, think that someone with no proper master's degree, university education, like Elon Musk, could should be in charge of something like this? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that, the whole thing is wrong. They, they, but they think they mean it. It's, yeah. They're not doing it to provoke. That guy is genuinely out of touch. Genuinely thinks that Elon Musk is an idiot. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. have you not seen the success of his businesses? <laughs> So, I mean, not blaming, yeah, I get the point. Don't blame the platform. What you're saying is there is a degree of personal responsibility. This is a very conservative value, of course, that actually we, we have to take responsibility for our own actions, even on the internet. Well, the internet is exposing uh, the, the, the strength and the flaws of humanity right. um, more than before. It's just, it's just a mirror held at the people themselves. That's all it is. Well, this is like when Ricky Gervais says that, you know, it's like the, 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 the scrolling on a toilet wall. You couldn't see it before, but yeah. Twitter just allow, allows you to see it. Exactly. Uh, so it's, it's not a, and that's why I've had, I've been to like uh, party conferences where politicians and, like, and members sit down, have these like really boring meetings and discussion tables about, uh, a couple of them I remember, which is about the, the, the online world and safety and these sort of things. And I just listened and it was about this and it was about the emotion side and how, oh, if someone basically says something offensive, someone will get offended, something like that. And I said, but we've been doing this for centuries and decades on the streets, on the, in, in the toilet, on the wall, and, and anywhere with graffiti. And we've been doing it already, but you haven't stopped them because you can't stop people. Okay. You can't go arrest every single person who says the F word. <laughs> but isn't there, some, isn't there a case to be made? that I take your point that yeah. human behavior doesn't really change. And, yeah. it, and it, it has been this case across history. But isn't there a case to be made that um, the kind of uh, degraded infantile discourse that Twitter 
thrives on that actually Twitter rewards. Yes. Insofar as things get shared more if they're a bit more blunt, right? Yep. 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 If they're a bit more extreme. Yep. That kind of discourse seems to have migrated quite effortlessly over into Parliament, say,、sure. or mainstream commentators, or、yes. all these kind of things. I think if you go back, if you read、uh, old opinion columns from I don't know forty years ago, yep, yep. you don't see this kind of mudslinging. Yes, it, 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 you don't see commentators deciding what what their opponents secretly think and assuming the worst of everyone. There was a sense in which you could have an argument <laughs> in in a civilized way, right? And and I think. There is evidence that the rise of social media has 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 had an effect. Yes, so you're absolutely right. I said it, it kind of exposed、uh, the the human flaw, but it also magnified it. You're、yeah. right. But at the same time, it's not the internet or social media or access information that created this problem. It was the people that created it to create the problem. We created it, it because it was there was always an appetite for. This unintentionally, of course. Yeah. And、um, there, there was a, the move towards the late twentieth、uh, century, post eighties and nineties, and you had the the good days again. Everyone was like basically friendly. You had the Cold War over, and you know, the Reagan days and Thatcher days over, and everything was safe. Like you had your Clintons and Blairs and Majors. Everyone was like friendly and like nice. That created the millennials. Yeah. That created we're now bored. So some of them did some good stuff. They created your Facebooks and all that. And then some of them became we just want to humans want to do things. We get bored, including anger, including we just want to be angry at something. We want to create problems, including the people I was growing up with in, in London, Lewisham. They were complaining about things even though they didn't have to complain about. Yeah, yeah. Um, we created this problem because it was always going to happen. If it wasn't Twitter, we are always going to be going towards this culture of shouty. Well, I miss the days of the eighties and seventies when you had talk shows like this, where they were. There's still on YouTube if people want to go and watch the, the interviews with the Milton Friedman, with Ayn Rand, where the, the presenter might have been on the other side of the political spectrum, but they had like a two-hour. That's what、chat. I mean. It's nice exactly that. Nice and quiet. And yeah. Now it's boring. Apparently now it's dull, but it shouldn't、yeah. be, right? <laughs> but that's precisely what I mean. It's、yeah. those sort of debates and discussions. I miss I mean, them. Even things like the the Muggeridge discussion about life of Brian, you know, and 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 Palin and Cleese are there, and the bishops sitting opposite,、yep. and it's it's not angry and and、no. tearing each other apart. It's it's a it's a, you know a sometimes caustic, sometimes adult,、uh, yes. funny discussion. But it's 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 there's a mutual respect,、yes. even though there's a fundamental disagreement. Yeah, and that I would love to restore. Yeah, but that that was、uh, what was、uh, respected by that generation, and then the the. The newer generation was seeing them as, oh, you guys are the boring ones. Oh, now I'm bored. I want, I want, I want to shout basically. So when I say that this culture was always, always created even before your Twitters, was question time. BBC Question Time was created way before that.、Yeah. Things, things like that was way before these social media platforms. They were already creating the shouty arguments and all those sort of things, and they, they were already creating your Jeremy Paxman interviews where it was like two-minute interview. You don't even get enough enough time for the minister or the politician to actually answer questions. So you, yes, exactly. You were trying to、yeah. catch them out. Yeah. So that was already it was already being created. The twitters were already being created. This culture of keyboard warrior, shouty,、mm. uh, you know, going、uh, with your kind of yellow vests and you know the truckers and you know the the Corbynistas and everybody being more kind of out there and outspoken was already a wave that started about twenty years ago, fifteen twenty years ago. So do you see the current culture war, what we call the culture war, as being sort of a natural progression from what we've already seen? Yeah, and it was it was basically always going to happen. And uh, uh, my view is it's kind of needed.、Uh, it's best for the West. Okay.、Uh, What do you mean by it's, that? It's best to kind of、uh, some people on the left and the liberal side see it as a dangerous thing、uh, that、uh, you open the door to chaos, and now we're going to go towards Hitler. 
And my yeah. view is because we opened the door to chaos is why we're not going to go towards Hitler. For example, Trump being elected in 2016, yeah. that four years, uh, from day one, the liberal side was saying, because we elected him, because we gave a voice to the, the nutters and the deplorables, you're now going to create Hitlerism. But in fact, put aside, of course, people could have like different arguments about, uh, we could have debates about the, the, the 6th of January in Charlottesville, things like that. They, they mis management in terms of the wording and communication from Trump as president, fine. Yes. But throughout the whole four years, my view is, not that he, whether he planned it or it was kind of unintentional subconsciously, he contained the crazy because he actually allowed uh, the, the, the dialogue to happen because we were shutting it down. If you put a lid on it for such a long time, like the 90s and 2000s with Blair and these guys, then Brexit happened. And if you hadn't actually allowed Brexit votes or Trump to actually happen, then you could actually have a chaos, actual chaos. So it's a good thing I mean, that we're going to... I think that's right, that had the Brexit vote been thwarted, hmm. which is what so many in Parliament explicitly wanted to do, Nick yeah. Clegg wrote a book about yeah. how to stop Brexit. Oh, you know, yeah. This is an explicitly anti-democratic yeah. movement. Yeah. If that had succeeded, I think the powder keg would have been lit. Then chaos In, in, in quite a really yeah. unpleasant way, I think. Then, yeah, that's when chaos, actual chaos will happen, or if they hadn't even um, given the permission to have the referendum. Uh, yes. basically change their mind. Cameron's saying, oh, I changed my mind now. Same thing would have happened. Uh, right now, you allow the, the, the energy and the, the, even, even the anger to be released. And it's okay. a good thing. You're containing uh, but the, but chaos. The, but the Trump thing as well yeah. could, I mean, I, I would argue that Trump's presidency did actually escalate the culture wars in some ways because he wasn't very good at lowering the temperature. No, when but, it came to these debates. Well, true, I agree. And, but that, it goes back to what I said, that it was basically kind of like needed. Uh, we, we have to go through this shouty period to avoid a long-term, you know, Mussolini's and the, or, or Soviet Union days. I suppose, I mean, you know, certainly with the 6th of January, it's quite clear that the Democrats had to re uh, engage in historical revisionism to make that fit this template of the rise of a fascist dictator. Because, you know, all of a sudden they were saying, Nancy Pelosi saying about... 6th of January is the same as it was the same as Pearl Harbor <laughs> oh, yeah. or the same as 9-11. Well, everyone can see that's not true. Yeah. Everyone can see it's it's a few idiots in horns. Yeah. Uh, trespassing and, you know, and not to no, no. undermine the injuries and the death and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, but still. Yeah. But it's not the same. <laughs> yeah, absolutely as not. A, as, a, as a terrorist attack in which 3,000 people are, are murdered. And these things had to happen for your Nancy Pelosi to say those sort of things, for us to then expose them. And we might say, we might think that, oh, Nancy Pelosi still doesn't understand it. Or this one that still, Nick Clegg still doesn't understand Brexit. You might say that, but deep down, they understand it more than if it hadn't happened. So if you had actually allowed the, the establishment, the, the kind of the, the centrist kind of global establishment to keep beating power yes. for decades, then they wouldn't even have had experience things like this. So they would have always had this caricature of uh, anyone who disagrees with me is going to be a crazy bomb villain, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen, you know, I lost friends over Brexit, but then I've seen a, a number of people recently. And I think there's a general view hmm. among particularly the Remain contingent that people went a bit mad mm -hmm. and that they accept that they went a bit mad. And, you know, th those reactions in the first few weeks after the vote were so insane, mm -hmm. so unhinged. You know, anyone who voted leave is evil, yep. you know, unfollowing, blocking, yep. uh, you know, this civil war, effectively. I think a lot of people now accept that they reacted in a, in a childish way. Well, the Remain side? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people do. I think so, and that's why they lost the support towards the end um, in terms of the, the street protests and things like that. Yeah. Because uh, when the vote happened, a lot of people were saying, basically, they were, they were implying that 
with Brexit years, we're waking up the next day, 24th of June, 2016. Oh, I am now racist. This feels interesting. Nobody woke up racist. And like nobody like woke up no. because of Brexit saying, oh, I now feel empowered to go out there and punch someone. Nobody did that. In fact, Brexit years stopped everything because they won the vote. It was the Romanians who kept protesting. And then Brexit came out when Parliament was trying to stop the actual Brexit. And otherwise, you already contained the so-called crazy on the right, the, the Brexit side by giving them the actual referendum. But, but, but again, it came down to mischaracterizations. I mean, one of the biggest narratives that I heard in the media all the time was that the Brexit vote was swung because we are living in a country of people who want blue passports, <laughs> who want to, to stop all immigration, who hate immigrants, who hate foreigners, and who want empire back. That was the big one. Uh, Vince Cable stood up and said, you know, this is just about nostalgia for empire. Right. Keep hearing this nostalgia for empire yeah. thing. Um, and yet I've never met anyone who has a nostalgia for empire. <laughs> I don't actually think that's a thing. I think there might be one or two nutcases here and there, um, but that's just, it, it was just fabricated. There was no evidence for it. Yeah. And it, it was taken as being the key decision-making uh, factor here. Yeah, so uh, since the actual vote uh, a few years ago, now it's been ages, it still feels like yesterday. I it does, doesn't it? Because it, it still lingers. <laughs> I know, it goes back. I spend a lot of time in these debates uh, defending that, saying, uh, no, 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 it's caricature. And, you know, the majority obviously didn't want it for that reason or like they don't think that they were in the empire or things like that. Or the blue passport. Then I'll stop actually talking about that because I realized, you know what? It could double down. I'm going to double down yeah. and I'm actually going to translate what they mean. And they are right. When they say or when you think they say they want empire back, they want Britain as soft global power back. When they, that's when you, not the same as empire. No, but, you know, they think that's what they mean. But well, people actually want something. They, what they want is Britain to be a strong country, not to run the world, but to actually just stand up for yourself. But that's so different. It's very a, different. A, a, exactly. a country that, is, that, it, that has sovereignty, yeah. that doesn't outsource its decision-making cap capabilities to a foreign nation, yeah. that's not the same as wanting an empire. Or wanting back. to conquer, exactly. But it's and not even comparable. No, exactly. And, and that's what they don't get. Uh, because for them, uh, for the, the, the certain liberal side of, and that who voted Remain or still campaigning for Ramon and rejoining, they think it's either uh, being a, a, a globalism and uh, the kind of human cooperation Star Trek world, or anything that's not that is empire conquering the world. But there's a third one, which is y y we, we want soft, global, strong Britain so that we could actually stand up for ourselves, not to shut our doors to anybody and not to conquer the world. It's just to have respect because everyone wants to be pr proud of, a, of their tribe your family, your flag. So this comes back else. to what you were saying before. It's about the tribe. And we want people want the tribe of Britain to become strong again for themselves so that they could feel more proud and patriotic. And that's all we wanted. The blue passport is a good example. It's all symbolic. The blue passport, the, the attitude towards it, it's not that even like, you know, people were campaigning on the street saying, I'm waiting for a blue passport. No, I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I saw more of that insofar as I saw some editorials say in the sun yeah. and that kind of thing, people saying it's great, we're getting the blue passport. Yeah. What I didn't see, though, is people voting in order to get the blue passport. But that no. wasn't like the, 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 yeah, the exactly. that wasn't the thing that swung it. No, no, it was a symbolic thing. And it goes all in the same package of they just wanted to make their tribe stronger again so they could be proud of their neighborhood, which is called the United Kingdom. And everything goes back to tribalism for humanity. So what, let's just talk a little bit about America because you've taken an interest in American politics and where it's going. Mm -hmm. And you say that the Trump presidency was a necessary, yeah. uh, almost release valve, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, but what happens if he gets in again? <laughs> Is it likely? And, and, and what, how will that look very different from, or will it look different from what we saw before? And what could the implication be for the culture wars? 
That's interesting. I mean, if he plays his, his cards right, uh, he could actually run it differently. Uh, my my theory and kind of view, again, it's a very complicated whole journey and the two elections, but 2016, he ran as the kind of the underdog anti-establishment one. I'm, I'm yes. kind of fighting on your behalf. But that changes when you've been president, right? Exactly. So the 2020 campaign was keep America great. And that was not a Trumpian thing. Uh, it's a very establishment thing. So it was not as convincing, of course. Okay. You know, whether we could talk about the, 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 the other aspects of the whole election and, you know, all the Biden stuff. But that, again, wasn't really him. So this one, at this time, if he actually gets a nomination and everything else, and the GOP actually, the Republicans were like, we're now behind Trump again. If he runs it the way I want him to run, which is um, a combination of statesman slash activists saying, hey, I, I, I'm, the, I'm your president. I just went on holiday. I'm back now. Don't be too. I'm now. I'm. I'm. I'm completely the leader, and I'm basically I'm just hit, just vote for me again. But also, don't go too activist. Too, too 2016. You don't need that anymore. Yeah, but he does. I mean, like, in, so <laughs> yeah. even in what he's been saying so far, he keeps talking about the rigged election, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He's not going to stop that. <laughs> but whatever people think about that, it looks like it looks yeah. petulant. Well, yeah. I mean, it, that's why. Uh, I, I don't think strategically it's a good idea. Is what I'm saying. No, no. Ben Shapiro actually said that on on, on his show quite recently about because uh, he was he's I think he's getting closer to DeSantis from uh, California, uh, Florida right. to actually stand. He's saying uh, the mistake that uh, Trump might be making for America is that he might make the ne next election about if he runs, it will be about him and the return of Trump. Whereas he the, tends to make things. Yeah. About whereas him, though, the, right? the election should be a referendum on Biden. Well, this will be the king thing, won't it? Because I mean, last time. Uh, Biden won because he wasn't Trump. You know, yes. I mean, he, he just hid away. Uh, he didn't have to do much. Yep. Uh, you know, he relied on the yep. strength of feeling against the uh, the incumbent president. Yeah. So this time it feels like it could be the other way around. As far as Biden has not been a success by any standards. And a lot of Democrats are very disillusioned with, with Biden. Yeah. Um, and that could be the thing that swings it for the Republicans this time is, again, fighting against what you don't want the, the president to be. Exactly. I mean, it, it, just like uh, 2020 was a vote, um, well, it, against um, uh, Trump, it wasn't like for Biden. This time, uh, 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 Trump uh, just did an interview on a channel, uh, and he was basically saying that when he was asked, uh, can you beat Biden? He said, anyone could beat, basically beat Biden. Yeah. Uh, and that, that goes back to, yeah, he's right, but can he understand that? That, that if, if that's going to happen anyway, then make the, re the election about a referendum on Biden rather than yeah. on yourself again. Do you want it to be Trump, though, or would you rather the Republicans found a different candidate? If DeSantis could actually impress me more, it, 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 then yeah. Otherwise, um, I still would probably want Trump back. I, I could say it as an outsider, as a non-American, because I, I could just, you know, just watch the chaos. Yeah, um, of course. Um, I would struggle in America uh, between the two sides uh, on, a, on a partisan level. In terms of who to vote for? Or just generally speaking, on everyday like, yeah, life, yeah. Like red and blue. Uh, I don't think I could be full Republican or Democrat because I'm more libertarian, but uh, I'm still more Republican, of course. Yeah, yeah. But Trump, I think, is still needed. They still have to go through... The, that phase they still really? need to, they need to finish the phase just finish the wave and oh, then I, mean, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a risk but the republicans also because it, republicans need to basically um, sort out their party and they can only do it if they finish trumpian uh, phase and what about in this country i mean is it the case that to, to my mind labor just isn't a credible opposition at the moment i mean mm -hmm. i know party gate has really caused a lot of trouble mm -hmm. uh, for the for the uh, for boris and for the tories generally I don't think it's enough. I don't think, I don't think, uh, I think Starmer might, uh, might be the problem here. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Labour also have to go through Starmer. Uh, he has to stay 
and stand the next election and lose. Which he will. If, you, if, you, if they get rid of him now, it's the worst thing for Labour because uh, he is the transition between Corbynism and the next, next Labour. I was going to say new Labour, but the next Labour. What does that have to be there? What does that have to look like? I think there has to be an element of they need to pick a side. The Labour Party have now changed. They're, they're no longer that party of uh, the, the Atlees. They're, they're the party of uh, uh, your trade union working class sort of side um, who then became the UKIP voters and the Brexit and the, well, they the, the Tory They're voters. not the party of the working class anymore. That's yeah. pretty much clear. So then pick a side. Go Liberal Metropolitan, like the Democrats. Go that way. It's a risk. They're going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. The, but they have to pick a side. They can't. The, the longer they go, I'm going to get the Hackney votes and Islington votes as well as uh, Hull and you know the, the, those areas and the kind of Peterborough you can't you, 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 you can't do that the only way you can do it if, if you're the Tory party the Tory party specific the Tory party because it doesn't stand for anything they can pander to the shires as well as uh, the middle classes in, in, in cities but wouldn't it be refreshing to have an actual opposition as in an authentic <laughs> authentic left wing movement within yeah. parliament wouldn't that be it would give the electorate a choice it would be, you know, I mean, it would be lovely, but uh, it, 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 the current Tory party is the creation of the Labour Party. They've already made the Tory party the left-wing party, about to, to aspects of it. So they, they, you can't go left. Unless you go Corbyn left, you can't go left. What sort of left-wing party are you going to be? Because Starmer is trying to be left. He's saying, I'm going to raise taxes. And Rishi Sunak says, I'm raising taxes more. Like, so Starmer yeah. can't do anything. He says, I'm, I'm going to do lockdown. And Boris says, I'm doing lockdown six more months. I'm like... It's, it, people made fun of Starmer, and I made fun of Starmer, saying, well, what are you offering since the lockdown days? We can't really blame him, because what, what was he going to do? Come, come out against lockdown? <laughs> was, no, I mean, that, well, Labour were pushing for even more restrictions. I know, yeah. But that was not enough, because then you know, Boris was already doing it. Well, exactly. <laughs> so were you never go into politics then? You'd never think about running? Uh, no, I, I, in the words of Boris Johnson, I'd rather die in a ditch than <laughs> <laughs> go into politics then. Absolutely not. Really? Yeah. And is that just because you can't ally yourself 100% with any party or any... No, no, that's a, that's a spoiled argument. It's 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 because um, I've actually come to understand that the real change and real influence is not really done in, inside the political bubble. Um, right. Politicians and government don't really make the actual change, um, but they think they make the change, but it's not. These are your uh, individuals, whether it's the, in terms of narrative, the culture. People yeah. like yourself and hopefully me, maybe we actually influence on a cultural level. People like Elon Musk and business people, they create products that save real life problems. Yes. They are the ones who solve the problems. We are the ones who are actually um, influencing the culture and society. Politicians just do short, short term and they, they come up with plasters. They put a plaster on something. Next one, take it off, put a plaster somewhere else. So, no, I'm not going to do politics. And is that what you feel your vocation is behind the, the, you know, the driving motivation? behind all you do with YouTube and that kind of thing. It's, it's propaganda. <laughs> well, not necessarily propaganda, but to, yeah. I wasn't accusing yeah, you of that. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> but wanting to affect change, wanting to persuade other people of your point of view, is that what, where you're coming from? Yes, absolutely. And I think my, my current mission is uh, to fight for uh, a, a, a new normal, a normality when it comes to ideologies, uh, uh, fix um, internationalism and nationalism so that we stop this ultra-globalist kind of movement towards Star Trek and also stop a an accidental isolationist nationalism. So we could actually have a national libertarian society. So I'm trying to basically influence both sides to kind of calm everybody down and give them some sort of hope. Every kind of media outlet and kind of generally speaking, the old school ones, the legacy ones, all about doom and gloom and negativity. I'm trying to give some positivity. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you, Maya, for joining me today. Thank you very much. Yes. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, the political YouTuber, Maya Tusi, 
Do check out Maya's uh, Twitter account, that's uh, Maya Tusi, and also his YouTube videos as well. And if you enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe and join me next week. Farewell.